0: Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you are in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Amen. Let me have you open up the Word of God, and let's open up our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah the prophet in the Old Testament. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament, if you don't know where that is. So Zechariah and chapter 14, the very last chapter of of that book. So I've been doing a series of messages, and this will be the last one in that series that I just entitled A Season of Hope, uh, because we're going through, we're actually in the middle of these fall festivals that God commanded uh, for Israel to keep. In Leviticus chapter 23, and if you've been following these messages, I've already given you a whole lot of information on these things. And we talked last week about the Feast of Tabernacles, and begin to to talk about that. And we're going to continue along the lines of the Feast of Tabernacles today, and continue talking about that today with a special focus on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles in Hebrew is called Sukkot. Sukkot, and the last day is called Shmini Atzeret, Shmini Atzeret, which simply means the eighth day, and the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles is the last day of the Feast, and the great day of the Feast, and we're going to be going over to John chapter 7, because it's mentioned in the Gospels that Jesus, on the last great day of the Feast, did something very special, and there's a very special word for us in this day of of the feast so that's what we're going to be looking at today and we're going to begin with zechariah so let's pray father i just thank you for your word we come before you lord with open hearts and i just want to give you glory and praise and honor i thank you for the beauty of your creation i thank you that you've put those stars in the skies to show forth your glory and to proclaim your gospel I thank you that you've put these feasts in a cycle that repeat year after year after year to show forth your glory and to minister the gospel into our lives, Lord. So I pray that as we look at this last great day, at this uh, uh, day of the eighth day of the feast today, I pray that you will really speak some things to our hearts and give us an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin in Zechariah chapter 14, in chapter 14 of Zechariah, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 16, uh, the last verses of Zechariah. It says, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of tabernacles. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up to enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in all of Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will be no longer no, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of Hosts in that day, Amen. So this is a very interesting passage of scripture at the end of the book of Zechariah. If you have been one of the blessed few who come on Tuesday evenings and you've been going through the book of Revelation together, then I've talked about this uh, several times. But one of the things that we see with Bible prophecy is that the further the prophecy is away historically, uh, the chronologically, the further away it is, then the less exact detail there is related to that prophecy, and the closer it is, the more detail it gets. And that's just one of the things you need to understand about Bible prophecy. And I give this example, that if you were on top of a mountain and you were looking with binoculars at mountains that were far away, you would describe them in one way, and if you didn't understand and had never been in that area and didn't have a map, you know, if you were like in the Donner Party or something like that, and you were just completely lost, you, would, you may think that that mountain that you see very close to you is very close to you. But then if you tried to journey to that mountain, you would find that it's actually very far away and that it's actually not even a part of the same mountain range that you're in currently, that it's in a different mountain range. Right? So that's an easy thing to understand. And so the prophets of the Old Testament, when they look from a great distance, they describe things that become much, much clearer in the New Testament and especially in the book of Revelation. What Zechariah is seeing here is related to two separate um, periods. And the second one of them I find it hard to call a period because it's actually eternity, and eternity has no time constraints on it. But two separate periods in the book of Revelation. And the first is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. And he says that during that reign of Jesus Christ, when the kingdom of God comes on this earth at the second coming of Jesus, and establishes his kingdom upon this earth, that during that, that reign, there will be many, many people left on the earth who did not die in what we usually call Armageddon, where the armies that come against Jerusalem and against the coming king are destroyed. Of course, there will be millions of people who are still alive who were not uh, born again before Jesus came back who had not been raised up from the dead when Jesus came back, okay? And so he says that even of all those nations during that thousand years, uh, they will be required, it will be commanded of them, that they come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember last week when we talked about it, I gave you two words that I want to focus on, and we're going to continue to focus on these. The, the first one is progression, and the second one is presence. That we are in progress. We are growing. We are moving forward. And if we're standing still, then we're not following Jesus. And we're moving towards a goal, and the goal is the presence of God. It's the presence of God. That we would be where God is. That we would be where Jesus is. I'm going to give you some scripture today to confirm that and support that. But I want to say in the beginning that most of our focus in our baby Christian life is I want God to be where I am, right? I want you to be where I am. You know, I'm praying that God will be where I am. That's what we focus on. But that's not the focus of a mature Christian life. The focus of a mature Christian life, it's perfectly fine in the beginning. It's just like our baby physical life. You know, we don't care anything about what our parents are doing, we want them to care about what we're doing, everything's focused on me. But as we grow in Christ, our focus should not be on, I want you, God, to be where I am, I wanna be where you are. Now, some people grow faster than others, and I challenge young people with this. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was in the temple, and at the age of 12, he was, he, he was separated from his parents, but he didn't really abandon his parents. They actually abandoned him because in their mind they thought he's still a kid and they didn't know where he was. And so they lost him for three days and when they found him, he gave them the most amazing answer. He said, did you not know that I would be about my father's business in the King James? But what it literally says in the Greek is, did you not know that I must be in the thing which belongs to my father? I have to be where my father is, and he knew that when he was 12 years old. So, you know, you don't have to wait a long time to grow up in Jesus. A big part of that growth is just saying, I'm going to be next to my dad. I'm going to be next to my father God. I'm going to be in that which is important to him, and, 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 and that's all that I really want. The truth is, that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And if we're not following Christ, then we're not his disciples. And we may call ourselves Christians, we may go to church, we may have all the outward forms of religion like the rich young ruler did. He said to Jesus, I have kept all these commandments from my youth up. And he even bowed on his knees before Jesus. But Jesus said, there's one thing left for you to do, you need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. If we're not following Jesus, then we're not disciples of Christ progression, and presence. And so it says in this first part that if the family of Egypt doesn't come up, then God won't send rain on them. By the way, just as a little side note here, we've lost that in our culture today, and it's sad. You know, we, we see that there's no rain. You know, every, everybody here knows that. You know, I mean, we're in a drought. Things are dry. And, and most people just attributed that to... I don't know, global warming or some other man-made thing. But people have lost that understanding that when things like that happen, maybe we need to lift up our eyes to heaven and pray to God and repent and say, why is there no rain on our land? The Bible says that if my people will humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways. You know, I will heal their land. But it begins with humbling ourselves and praying. So he says that even in that day, there will be no rain sent on Egypt. It will be a plague of no rain because they did not celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They did not celebrate the presence of the Lord. They were not there where God commanded them to be. But then it goes in from verse 20 and it shifts to focusing on Revelation 21, what's in Revelation 21, the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, where we will live for all of eternity together with God. And it is described also under the Feast of Tabernacles. But the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the first seven days, that speaks of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Seven is a perfect week, A 1,000 Uh, years is a perfect era, and that speaks of this 1,000-year reign of Christ, but there's also an eighth day of the Feast of Trumpets, and that day speaks of all of eternity, because when eternity comes, when there is a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to this earth, Revelation 21, by the way, it's always in progression. When John sees it, he says, "I see a city moving, coming down out of heaven to the earth." God is on the move, progression. And His presence is moving, and his he- it, the heavenly Jerusalem's coming down. And he says that I see the bride of Christ. We are that city. That's who we are. A city without people is a ghost town, right? but we are the city and we're moving and we are together with God. And so the last day is that day because it says in Revelation 21 that there is no longer a need for the sun or the moon and there is no longer going to be any night. There will only be day. And during the day, the doors or the gates of the city will always be open and there will never be a night. So if there's never a night, then what do you have? You have one single day that goes on For all eternity. Okay? And that's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a perpetual day that never ends. And so that is the last day. It's the eighth day. The eighth day is the first day. Right? Sunday is the eighth day. We have a calendar. If you look at the calendar, Sunday is always the first day of the week. Right? It's the eighth day. Jesus was raised from the dead on the eighth day, which is the first day. It's the day of new beginnings, the day of a new heaven and a new earth. As I told you, it's called in Hebrew, Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day. So that's actually being celebrated in Israel uh, tomorrow. And in Israel, it's celebrated one day, it's celebrated tomorrow, In other parts of the world, it's celebrated by the Jews for two days so that they don't accidentally not end up on the right calendar time with Israel. Uh, But that's actually happening uh, this week. It it begins uh, this very evening, this evening. This evening will already be the eighth day. So, what does it say here in Zechariah that I wanna especially draw your attention to? It says that in that day, in that eighth day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord, and that all the cooking pots will be holy to the Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament law, that's a shocking statement because that's not true. You could not just offer up an offering with any old cooking pot you found in your house. There were special designated golden treasures that were kept in the temple. They were holy to the Lord on which they would offer offerings to the Lord. And you'll remember that when Nebuchadnezzar took Babylon or Babylon took uh, Jerusalem and they burnt and Nebuchadnezzar eventually destroyed the temple and destroyed the city. They took all of those special instruments because they were very valuable to Babylon. They wanted those things because they were worth a lot of money and they were holy to the Lord. But Zechariah says that when that day comes, everything will be holy to the Lord. Do you know that horses are unclean animals in the scripture? You don't want to offend all the horse lovers here, but they're unclean animals. The good thing for you horse lovers is that meant that you could not eat horse meat. They were unclean animals, okay? But it says here that on the unclean animal, on the horse, even on his bells that are on his neck, it will be written and inscribed there these words, holy to the Lord. Now these words are an exact quotation that come from Exodus chapter 28, And in verses 36 and 38, it tells us when the instructions are given for preparing the clothing for the high priest for Aaron, that the only place that you would ever find these words is on the forehead of the high priest. He had a special little plaque that he would wear on his forehead, a little sign. And on the sign was written, holy to the Lord. And this high priest of the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons, were but a shadow of cast from the high priest Jesus Christ, because he is holy to the Lord. And so this tells us in this prophecy very late in the Old Testament, exactly what Jesus came to tell us, that where I am, you will be also, and that you shall be holy just as I am holy. I will make you holy. I don't know if you've ever tried to make yourself holy. Everybody tries it. You can't do it. But he makes us holy. He separates us unto himself. He says that we are that holy unto him. Do you know what the scripture says? In 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches that if there is an unbelieving husband and his wife is a believer, how many of you are familiar with that situation? It, it happens, right? It says that that unbelieving husband will be sanctified, made holy by the faith of his believing wife. And vice versa, if it's the husband that's a believer and the wife isn't. And a lot of people, well, what does that mean? Does that mean he just gets to go to heaven no matter what? I I don't know what it means. It just means he's made holy. He's made sanctified, which means he's going to get saved. As long as you hold on to him in faith, your faith will bring salvation to him or to her also. It's a great word of encouragement for the family. So where there is something that's holy then everything around it becomes holy also. But you need to understand something. Under the Old Testament law, that wasn't true. In fact, the exact opposite was true. Under the Old Testament law, if I was clean and I ha- accidentally stumbled upon uh, something that was unclean, a dead body, or you know, I accidentally walked through the graveyard or something like that, then I'm suddenly made unclean. And that's true in our real lives today, right? You take a shower in the morning, you get all clean, and then something breaks on your car, and you have to do something, and you've got that dirt all over your hands again and stuff. You know, it's easy to get dirty. It's hard to get clean. But that's the beauty of the gospel, that he makes us so clean because we get, we get infected by his cleanliness. He makes us holy. As long as we're with Jesus, we're clean. As long as we're where he is. The scripture even says in the Old Testament, I will be with you, or I am with you. And then it says, when you are with me. And I love that scripture. I will be with you, but you have to add on the rest of it. When you are with me. Go with me over to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you remember, we read in Nehemiah uh, already uh, concerning the restoration of these these uh, feast days and in Nehemiah chapter 8 without repeating where we were or giving you the context you can find that on your own let's just jump in right here at verse 13 verse 13 then on the second day the heads of fathers households of all the people the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in tabernacles or booths, live in these little houses, during the feast of the seventh month. So this is about the feast of tabernacles. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches, and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, or tabernacles, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths from themselves, for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate. And I want to focus on that water gate again in a minute. And in the square at the gate of Ephraim, The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made these little tabernacles and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. Huge exclamation point should be there. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day... That's Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, the last day, the great day of the feast. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance, according to the law. So the last day was a day of solemn assembly, a day to be gathered together. It's very interesting, the Hebrew word here for solemn, uh, that we translate into English as solemn. It, it, its root means to detain somebody or to arrest them, okay? It's a, it's a uh, solemn detainment, a place where people are detained and they can't go home, okay? Uh, a, a better way to say it in relationship to a festival would be that this festival is by invitation only. If you didn't RSVP, if you didn't agree to come ahead of time, Uh, If you'll remember the parable Jesus tells about the king who has a uh, wedding feast for his son, and none of the people show up. They RSVP, but they RSVP to say, no, we're not going to come. So he didn't let them come. And eventually he says, just go out into the highways and the byways, just like what it says here. Just go out and find some tree limbs and bring them on in here. Go out and find people and just bring them in because the house has to be full. And even then when they all get in there, he kicks one of them out. Because he doesn't come in with the right clothing on. One of the things interesting about discipleship, and I have a really good friend who was here not that long ago, Pastor Kevin Webster, uh, Kevin Webster, that's me, Kevin McMullen, (laughs) Kevin McMullen that came here and ministered. I'm kind of my good friend too. I like myself. And, uh, Kevin McMullen came here and ministered. Well, he called me yesterday because he had a word on his heart. He wanted to share with me because we had been talking about some things a couple of days ago. And he said, I just want to add this real quick. This is what the Lord spoke to me. And, and man, it really touched my heart. He said, you know, one of the things about discipleship that I've noticed is that God does not make discipleship easy. We make it too easy on people. And by making it easy on people, they're not prepared for the battle. They're not prepared for what's coming. We send them into the front, onto the front lines of serving Jesus because if you're going to serve Jesus, you will be persecuted. And we expect them just to survive out there facing the devil, facing the enemy, and they haven't had enough training. Discipleship is about training and being prepared for battle, about being prepared to do the Great Commission, to follow Jesus. And so we shouldn't make it too easy on them. We shouldn't make it, you know, every parent here knows, sometimes we just make it too easy on our kids. Because if you want something done right, you better just do it yourself, or I'd just rather hurry up and got over with. And maybe we're just too lazy in our discipleship of children. I know I get convicted by like that as a father sometimes. I'm just making this too easy on the kids. They need to do it themselves. And they need to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until they get it right. Because how will they be successful in life if they don't learn? You know, so we may, God, Jesus never makes it easy to follow him. And it's really interesting. Because I think we're used to this easy Jesus. So this, this uh, assembly is by invitation only. It's a closed-door assembly, and once you show up, you can't leave. You've got to stay for the thing. This is the eighth-day solemn assembly. So there are seven days of the feast, okay? Seven days of the feast. That's the thousand-year reign of Christ, as I said. The eighth day is the new day, the new beginning, the new heavens, and the new earth, the eternal day. So I want to draw your attention to the water gate again. We looked at this already. Uh, It's not Watergate, I always think of that when I read that Watergate, but the Watergate in the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, The Watergate, if you'll go back to chapter 3, verse 15 of Nehemiah, and we're not going to open that, but in chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us the Watergate had just been repaired. Okay, Remember, they repaired the walls of Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah is about, and they did it in record time. And uh, they did it against all odds. There were many enemies trying to stop them. And the plan that Nehemiah had, which is an amazing plan that really relates to how churches are supposed to work today. Every person built the wall, that section of the wall where their house was, where they lived. Nobody expected Pastor Nehemiah to come over and build their wall for them. They all joined together and cooperated and each person had their own faith to build a section of the wall in front of that place where they would live. And so when they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles, they didn't have to come to Jerusalem because they had just done something very interesting. They had just walled themselves in and said, this is Jerusalem. You know, Wherever we put this wall, that's Jerusalem. Wherever we put this wall, that's the house of God. That's the house of prayer for all nations. Okay, And so they put this wall up, And then they built these little shacks, the little shanties, the tabernacles, the booths, the sukkah, as they call them in Hebrew. They built them out of these branches. And some of them said, we're going to build it on top of a roof. Some of them built them down here. But it didn't matter where they built them as long as it was inside the wall. Okay? Because everything was holy to the Lord. And so they built these little tabernacles there. And it sounds kind of funny. It's like you built a brand new house. Because they just built all this stuff to live in. These walls, you build a house, you build a wall, and now you're going to put up a tent in your backyard to live in it. Why? Because God said do that. Because you're not in this physical uh, uh, Jerusalem uh, forever. This is just a temporary place. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived in tents, and they followed God. So they had just rebuilt this water gate at that time. And something very special was instituted that they did. It's not written in the Old Testament, but it's a rabbinical tradition. It's a Hebrew tradition. They uh, uh, would keep it in some forms to this day, uh, with different things that symbolize it. But during the time of Jesus, it was huge. And we need to understand this before we go over to John. On each day of the feast, they would go down to a pool called Siloam, okay? And this pool, Uh, was right there by the wall of Jerusalem. It was the king's pool. It was a special place. And it was a very still, a very beautiful pool of water. And on each day of the feast, the priests would go down there and they they would draw water out of that pool. And then the people would take whatever they had, cups, things, and everybody would draw water out of that pool. And they'd march that water through the water gate. Okay? And then they would pour that water out as a drink offering before the Lord. And even in the most ancient Hebrew times, they understood this as meaning the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on our city and on our flesh, okay? That's not something that they did not understand. They expected that. They expected the Messiah. Unfortunately, many of them just missed out when he came, okay? But they were doing this as symbolism of the coming and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. However, there's something very interesting about this. Uh, On the eighth day, on the last day, they did not do it. They did it for seven days, but they would not do it on the eighth day. And just keep that in your mind as we go over to John chapter 7, because that's the day where Jesus is going to do it, okay? Isaiah chapter 12 and verse Three, I'll just give you this real quick. It's a prophecy concerning the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 12, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And on the basis of that that word, that's why they did this symbolic act. Because we will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Now go with me over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And we'll read a number of verses here. We won't read them all, but you do really do yourself a favor to go home and read the whole chapter. So begin with verse 1. It says, after these things, in John chapter 7, verse 1, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If perchance you don't know where those places are, you've probably got a map back there in the back of your Bible and just look and see. So Jerusalem obviously is in Judea, and he's up north in Galilee where Nazareth uh, is, where he was raised, and uh, so he's unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, and, and again, because some people get confused about this, that doesn't mean all the Jews, you know, Jesus himself is Jewish, it means the Jewish leaders, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of tabernacles was near. Therefore his brothers, Jesus' brothers, said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Now it's going to tell us in a minute that his brothers don't believe on him. They will later after the resurrection. One of his brothers is James. One of his brothers is is Jude. Uh, so they will believe on him after the resurrection, but they don't believe yet. And they've made this grave mistake concerning Jesus. Huge mistake. Huge mistake that we make also. They think Jesus actually cares about being famous. And he doesn't. <laughs> they think it's really important if you're going to start a church to really make a big deal about publicity and make, everything, make Jesus famous, you know. But that's not what Jesus cares about. In fact, Jesus never, he, he so doesn't care about being famous that, as I said, he doesn't make it easy to be his disciple. And in John chapter 6, right before this, right before this, everybody leaves him, dumps him, because he keeps talking about, you've got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they're getting offended. And they leave him. And then he turns to the 12, and he says, hey, are you guys going to leave too? He's like, go on and get out of the church if you don't want to be with me. And Peter's like, well, where are we going to go? We don't have any place else to go, so we're staying. He didn't say we're staying because we understand what you what you mean or we like what you're, you're teaching us. Now, I don't think they necessarily thought that he really meant, you know, I'm going to let blood out of my veins and you're going to drink it because it's be completely non-Jewish. But they understood that he was talking about a level of commitment, a level of discipleship that went way beyond anything else anybody was demanding. Okay? That you've got to drink my blood and you've got to eat my flesh. You've got to be born again and become one with me. And I don't think Peter liked that either. But he was smart enough to know that he didn't have any other choice. And he said, I have no place else to go, so I'm staying with you, So Jesus didn't care about being popular, but they thought he did. Um, so he says, you, you want to go to Jerusalem so you can make yourself known. Uh, and this would be the, the best place to do it. You know, the whole Jewish world will be gathered there. Uh, if you do these things, they continued, show yourself to the world. You know, if you're really doing all these miracles, prove it. Anybody ever had that attitude toward God? <laughs> prove it. Go ahead and prove it to me. So Jesus says to them, my time, pay attention to that, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. You go up to the feast yourself. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Now he's going to go ahead and go up to the feast, if you've ever read this chapter. And some, the first time you read it, you thought, boy, Jesus just told them a little white lie, didn't he? But Jesus doesn't tell lies, okay? <laughs> or Jesus is kind of sneaky there. He just wanted to sneak in there. Well, there's a reason, actual reason why he would sneak in there. One thing about Jesus is he doesn't do anything that his father doesn't tell him to do, right? Think about the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And Mary comes to Jesus and says to him, they don't have any wine left. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? He's not planning on doing a miracle. He's just at the wedding. I'm not the wedding planner. It's not my problem. Just a completely normal answer. But then Mary goes to the servants and she has such faith that she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's really the heart of discipleship. Do you know that? Whatever he says to you, do it. And apparently, in the story, suddenly, because of her faith, things change when somebody has faith. Do you know that? You, you can see examples in the Old Testament where if you're reading the King James, it actually says, and God repented. Because in the Hebrew, it says, God changed his mind. Why? Because somebody had faith. Okay? And so he held back the judgment because somebody had faith. You remember Hezekiah. Hezekiah. He's sick unto death, and and God tells the prophet, you go tell Hezekiah. He's going to get his house in order because he will die today. And he goes and tells him, and Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and weeps and repents before God, and then before the prophet can even get out of the courtyard, God says, go back and tell him he gets 15 more years. God wants to have mercy on us. God wants to bless us. God wants to pour out rain on our, on our country. He wants to bless us in our lives. And he doesn't even need us to do a, you know, a, a huge uh, act of repentance. He just needs us to humble our hearts before him and say, I'm sorry, God. Whatever you say, that's what I will do. Whatever he says to you, do it. So he's not lying to them. The father just hasn't told them to go up yet. And when he goes up, he goes up for one specific purpose. He doesn't go up for the seven-day part. He goes up for the one-day part, the eighth day, for the last day, the great day. So he says that to them. It says in verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Uh, and there was much grumbling among the crowd, crowds concerning him. And some were saying, he is a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him because that wasn't politically correct. And they were afraid of the Jews. Sounds a lot like our society today, doesn't it? Nobody was speaking their honest mind and heart because they were too afraid of what would happen to them. And so they were saying the party line, saying the things that the Jews wanted them to say. But when it was now the midst of the feast, so about, you know, Wednesday in the feast, if it had been on however the feast had fallen, but about the third or fourth day of the feast, when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Okay, let's stop for just a minute there. In Isaiah, chapter 8, in Isaiah, chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, it says, inasmuch as these people, referring to Israel, as these people, the people of God, inasmuch as they have rejected the gently flowing waters of Siloam in the New Testament. So remember, we talked about the water gate, in this pool of Siloam. And we're going to see that this is Jesus. Inasmuch as they have rejected the gently flowing waters of Siloam, and they rejoice in Rezin and the son of Ramalia, these are the leaders of Assyria, the most powerful military force on the earth at the time that Isaiah was writing this. Because they have put their trust in their military might and power and not put their trust in my presence, okay? Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. What's that? That's Babylon. God is going to bring the strong and abundant waters of Euphrates on them because they rejected the gently flowing waters of Siloam. And it the Euphrates will reach... And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Who is Emmanuel? Who is Emmanuel? Is Jesus. God with us. So the land belongs to Jesus. Jesus is stand, he sneaks up to the to the festival that is all about God with us. God's tabernacle is with us. We are tabernacling together with God. It's a very special time. And he looks over his land, he sat upon a mountain of, on the Mount of Olives and looked over Jerusalem, and the scripture tells us that he wept as he looked at Jerusalem. He wept, and he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you to myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself, but you would not. You rejected my love. You rejected my mercy. You rejected my outstretched arms. I want to bless you. I want to gently flow in your life. I want you to live in peace. I want you to be prosperous. I want you to be in health. You know, he took, in in chapter 9 of John, he's going to send a blind man, and he's going to say, go to the water of Siloam and wash your face in that water, and you will see, because the water is Jesus, but you would not, and so Jesus is here on that day, and he's going to speak words in this teaching. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'd love for you to read it at home, and it's going to begin with verse 14. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, with verse 16. The word siloam, I know I'm giving a lot of information, but hold on to this. The word siloam, it means sent. Okay? Sent. And, that, and that's brought out in chapter 9 of John, so it's important. In chapter 9 of John, when Jesus sends the blind man to wash there, John tells us in parentheses, that word means Sent. Okay, now listen to what Jesus says in the beginning of this teaching. The teaching he's giving to prepare them for what's coming at the end, and we'll get to that. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I am the sent one. If anyone is willing to do his will, the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why did you seek to kill me? And then they all freak out. What do you mean we want to kill you? And Jesus answers, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but it's from the fathers. In other words, Abraham circumcised long before Moses. And on the Sabbath, you would circumcise a man. If a boy was born, and the eighth day of his life was a Sabbath day, they would do a circumcision, even though it's work to circumcise somebody. Okay, and that would not be, that, but it would not, it would have an exception. You could do this work on the Sabbath day. You could circumcise a boy who is eight days old because the law commanded to do it on the eighth day. Also interesting, by the way, eighth day, right? It's not a mistake that Jesus is choosing circumcision, this symbol, this sign of being born again. Okay, so if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken. Why are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. I mean, remember, they're furious with him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath day. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That should be on our walls at home. (laughs) It's a good word. So the people in Jerusalem are saying, You know, this is the man, is this a guy, is this a Christ, they're going to talk about this, and then they ask this question, you know, well, he must not be the Christ. When it says the Christ, that's just Greek for Messiah. He must not be the Messiah. He must not be the sent one. He must not be the appointed one. Why? They say, because everybody knows that nobody will know where the Christ comes from, but we know where he comes from, Okay? The fact is, first of all, they don't know where he comes from. They think he comes from Nazareth, and he doesn't. He comes from Bethlehem. But some people do know where he came from. Even King Herod sought him out, and the prophet said he's going to arise from Bethlehem, or the, the, the teachers said that the prophet said he would arise from Bethlehem. But they think that that's not really what they're talking about. They think that he can't be the Christ because when the Christ comes, He won't just be walking around among the people. Why do they think that? Well, in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, and the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly. Literally, he will come from out of nowhere into his temple. So they took Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and they had made this whole tradition around it, that when the Messiah comes, He's not going to come like this guy came. He's not going to walk around healing people and ministering to people and talking to sinners and gentiles and all these things that Jesus does. When he comes, he's going to come like lightning out of heaven. He's going to come suddenly to his temple, okay? And they aren't wrong. The only problem is they missed all the verses that deal with his first coming. They didn't understand the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. When he comes next time, I promise you, he won't come on a donkey. He will come on a white horse, and he will come out of nowhere. He will come suddenly. Jesus said it will be like lightning that flashes in the east, and you see it all the way to the west. The whole world will see, and the whole world will know, and it will come suddenly. But because they expected that to happen the first time, they couldn't believe that he's really the Christ. And so he says in verse 28, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And he says to them, I think a word that's really important. He says the truth is, if you search your heart and you quit speaking the party line, you quit talking all the political correct junk, and you search your heart, you actually do know me, and you know where I come from. You actually do know the truth. You know what's right, and you know what's wrong. So stop being brainwashed and focus on me. So Jesus is doing this teaching to shake them up. He says, I know him. I know the Father God because I am from him, and he sent me. And then he says later, for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. And then he repeats it. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Why is Jesus saying that? That's mean. He's saying it's because it's truth. You can't, what, I mean it's implied, you cannot come unless you repent and you are born again. Unless something changes in your current state, Jerusalem, you cannot come to where I am going. Because it says that the wings of the Euphrates, they will overflow the entire land of Emmanuel. And Jesus is standing there on that day, and he's weeping over Jerusalem. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going back to the one that sent me. And you cannot come there. But a part of what he's saying, and we'll see this in a second, of you cannot come is one of those things that good parents do from time to time, where it's a challenge to them. You know what I'm saying? It's like saying to them, there is no way that you can come to this party. You're totally not invited. You know, just, just to see, are they going to want to come? Are they going to say, hey, I will come then. I'll teach you, Jesus. I will serve you after all. I will follow you after all. He's not making the way easy for them. They have to die to themselves in order to follow him. And it goes throughout the book of John. So let's go to this last day, finally, this very last day. And let's read these scriptures that to most of you are very familiar. But hopefully seeing this in this context, you'll really understand them. In verse 37, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, this is this Shemini Aseret, the eighth day of the feast. Remember, on this day, they do not carry the water through the water gate. Okay? Every day they carry the water through the water gate, but not this day. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, When it says things like stood and cried out, you have to really, you know, I can't even do my voice loud enough right now to do that, especially with the microphone on, because that would be terrible. But uh, you just have to imagine, remember, he's moving secretly around them. He pops up and teaches here, then he pops up and teaches there, and they can't catch him. They can't find him. It's like Jesus playing hide and seek with them. He's not. He's just there, and he knows when he needs to be there and when he doesn't need to be there. By the way, that's something really interesting to me. Very interesting to me. From time to time, I think, you know, where, where is Jesus? I know he's here, but I don't know where he is and exactly what he's doing. And I want to know. I want to hear his voice. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and a stranger they shall not follow. I, I really believe, you know, there's... there's, there's Well, I don't don't want to go too far with the examples uh, because it would go on for 10 or 15 minutes. But but there is something about a living relationship between a husband and wife, between friends, anywhere. There's always this element of mystery. You know what I'm saying? There's always this challenge to move to the next level, to something better. When things get boring and old, you know, you've got to spice it up. And, and Jesus is never just leaving people where they are. He's always doing these surprises all the time, okay? So if you're following Jesus, keep your eyes peeled, as my dad used to say. I always hated that saying when he'd say it. it was like, ugh, my eyes peeled. He would always say, keep your eyes peeled, son. Keep your eyes peeled and be on the lookout for Jesus. Because if you get stuck in a religious box, you're going to miss what he's doing today. Because he's on the move. It's progression. It's presence. So it says on the last day, he pops up all of a sudden in the midst of the crowd. It doesn't say that he's standing at the water gate. But if we put all of this historical information together, that's where he would be because that's where they were. So at the water gate, he pops up and he cries out with this loud voice. And this is what he says. Remember, they're not bringing the water through this day. Okay. He says, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. What a perfect time to say that. Nobody's bringing the water today. He stands up and he says, you've been doing this for seven days, and it's a beautiful, wonderful, symbolic act, but it really all points to me. I am the living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. They knew what the water symbolized already, the context was there. Their minds were ready to hear this word. And he stands up on this last day and says, I am this living water. And if you come to me, and how do you come to him? He explains that too. He said, he who believes on me. You come to Jesus by faith. You come to Jesus simply by trusting him. Sometimes the word faith gets so religious, we don't understand it. It just means to trust somebody with all of your heart. When you trust in me, I will give you to drink of the living water. Remember he said that in John chapter four to the woman at the well. And she said, you don't even have a bucket. How are you gonna give me water? You know, I am the living water. You can drink of me. So in chapter six, he says, drink my blood, drink, eat my flesh. In chapter seven, he says, drink me. I'm the living water. Let me fill your lives. And then he says something so special Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this he speaks of the Spirit. Now, I want to tell you something about tabernacles. I I mentioned this last week. But you and I are spirit people. You and I are spirit people. We live in an earthly tabernacle. Go with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm closing now. Not. Not the last verse, but I am closing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's read what Paul says here by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, For we know that if the earthly tent, it's the same word, tabernacle or booth, that's used over there, if the earthly tent, which is our house is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If you don't know what he's talking about, he's talking about death, physical death. And he says this body that we live in is a tent. In their mind, you know, remember Paul was a tent maker. He had that profession also. And the way they made tents, is they would take usually goat skin, that was, bl- most of their tents were black. They would take usually goat skin, a common tent, and they would you know prepare the, the, the leather, tan it, whatever you do, all that stuff, and they would stretch that over poles, okay? So it's a perfect example of our bodies. Our bodies are tents. It's just skin stretched over poles, which are bones, okay? And we live, In a tent. And he says that. So we live in an earthly tent. But someday this earthly tent will be torn down. And when it's torn down, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Because you have a building from God. New Jerusalem. You have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, meaning in this tent we groan, Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Do you know that you and I are naked today? (laughs) That's why you wore clothes to church, because actually you're naked, right? (laughs) I won't get into the details here, but we're naked. After we sinned in the Garden of Eden, the first thing that we noticed, Adam and Eve, is we're naked and they made fig leaves to cover themselves. Before that, they were not naked. What it was like, I don't know, but they were clothed with God's glory. They didn't need these kind of clothes because they were clothed with God's glory. No, did you notice that animals don't wear clothes? You would have noticed that, right? Except in cartoons. <laughs> and when we were created, we didn't need these kind of clothes because we were clothed with God's glory. I don't know what that looks like, because I've never experienced that. But we're going to experience that. We will receive new bodies. And it says that we long to be clothed in that heavenly dwelling. And when we put it on, we'll no longer be naked. It says, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but we want to be clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So here's the thing. Just getting this too short, okay? I live in a tent. That tent is my body. It's holy to the Lord, okay? That's not degrading to my body to say that. Because my body and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And we live in this tent. We're confined to this tent. We don't move around without this tent. The minute that you're, the second that your tent dies, when a person dies, you don't, that's not really true that you're going to be a ghost walking around on the earth, okay? You're not going to be haunting people. I'm just sorry, if you wanted to, you're not going to. You're, you're going to be transported out of this earth, right? And as a Christian, you're going to be in the presence of God. You're going to be in heaven, okay, spiritually, spirit and soul, right? Body stays here and goes into the ground. If you don't have a body, you're not allowed to walk around on this earth. That's just not how things work. It's a physical world we live in. When God wanted to come to save us, what did he do? The son of God, it says in Hebrews that a body was prepared for him. He had to be born as a man. He was born just like we were born. Only he didn't have an earthly father, but he had an earthly mother. He was a little tiny, you know, embryo, all that. All of that. And he was born into this earth as a helpless, defenseless little baby, just like we are, because it's the only way to get into this earth. And when you lose the body, you get out of this earth, okay? So, inside this body, I've been born again. I've been made a new creation, but I'm still living in an old tent that still does wrong things, Still gets little boo-boos, gets big boo-boos, gets hurt, gets sick. You know, I, I still live in this old body. But here's something special. It says that God has given me his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is a down payment. A down payment on my eternal life. That's what God calls his Holy Spirit. A down payment. So ask yourself this question. If you made a down payment on a house and you signed all the contracts, and you paid your, your mortgage for two, three, four years. Let's say it's a 30-year mortgage and you've been paying it for 29 years. But in the 29th year or in the 30th year, before you finish that mortgage off, you completely default on that. You go bankrupt, what's the bank gonna do? They're gonna still take that house away from you because it's not yours until you pay for it and you'll lose your down payment. So if God says my Holy Spirit is a down payment, then that tells you you're never gonna lose the Holy Spirit. He is not going to abandon you. Because if God fails to save you, then he loses his Holy Spirit, and that's not possible. In other words, God is saying that I have sealed this covenant with my own spirit, in my own blood, in my own body, It's a guarantee. It can never be broken. You will be with me forever. Jesus said to the man, on the the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. So don't doubt God's love for you. Don't doubt how much God cares for you. You know one way that we doubt the love of God in our lives? One way that we doubt the love of God in our lives is we don't is we 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 say no to Jesus, and then we stop being His disciple, because the disciple says whatever He says, I'm going to do it. We say no to the Holy Spirit. We remember how the Holy Spirit moved all oh, back in the '70s or back in the '80s. Of oh, what a move of the Spirit that was awesome, man! That was powerful. And then we ask, oh, what's what's holding the Holy Spirit back today? Where's the revival? I see a coming revival. Well, why is that always coming? Why isn't it here? Maybe because we're saying no to the Holy Spirit. Maybe because we're not listening to what Jesus is telling us to do. Because we know that it's going to be a challenge for us to move further on with him. Progression and presence. Some of you have amazing testimonies in your life, of how you've gone literally through hell, but you've followed Jesus all the way through it. The Bible way of calling it isn't hell. It's called the valley of the shadow of death. And Psalm 23 tells us that the shepherd will actually lead you into it, but he will lead you out of it. Jesus himself, it says that he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. So I I get it that we can't understand everything God is doing. But you don't have to understand to say yes, do you? Instead of sitting there and wondering, what did you lead me into this situation for? Just keep following him. If you don't believe me, ask people who have gone through these things. Or remember in your life when you've gone through it, at the end of the valley of the shadow of death, you're going to look back and you're going to say, I thank you, God, that you led me through that. Because I'm a changed man or woman. I'm a different person today. And it never was about me, was it, anyway. It was about me progressing on into the presence of God. I'm going to go to one more passage of Scripture and I'll end here. There's many others I could give you concerning this, but John chapter 14 has to be the best. John 14. Everybody knows this, and many of us know this by by heart, but let's look at it. Let's read these words. It says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And by the way, sometimes we forget the context of that. The very verse before, he just told Peter that before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He just told him, things are going to get real bad peter they're going to get real bad and they're going to get worse before they get better but do not let your heart be troubled do you know this morning that you have the power over your own heart because you are a spiritual person you have the power over your own heart to to stop it from being troubled to stop it from being upset you have the power. Jesus was amazed when he was asleep in the boat and they woke him up and he finally got up and stilled the wind and the waves, wasn't he? He was like, you have little faith. Why didn't you guys do it? I told you, we're going to the other side. Just go. Wind, waves, whatever. Just keep going. I remember a little, little tiny story about John Montero. <laughs> One time he, he went up. He and Sherry with grandkids were up at Desert Creek and he said, "Take my dad's truck and meet us up there. We're going to have a picnic." And I'm like, "All right, yeah. How do I get there?" He said, "You see the sign Desert Creek? Turn right and just follow the road." I'm like, all right, I'll do it. But well, probably the sign Desert Creek's down at the bottom. What he meant was go all the way up to the top on the highway when you get to that sign, turn right. So I'm just, we're going through these riverbeds, you know, water's up to the door. And I'm like, broom, broom. And "Tony's going. Are you sure you know what you're doing?" I said, "It's John's truck." John said, "Do it." So everything's going to be fine, and everything was fine. We got there, and he how was it? I go, it was a pretty rough road, and he goes, it's not that rough. And we have, and he goes, where? You... you came from there? I didn't mean that. And then Sherry said, Damn, I told you, to... but <laughs> point is, we made it, right? And I wouldn't have even attempted to cross those rivers if John hadn't told me do this. But it's his boat. I mean, not his boat. <laughs> His truck. The truck is like a boat. I was thinking of the disciples in the boat. Jesus said to them, just go to the other side. I'm not even sure they had to stop the wind and the waves. What they had to do is just hang on and keep going. Okay? But, praise God, He's merciful. And when we cry out to Him, He will stop the wind and the waves, and He will not allow us to be tempted beyond which we, what we are able. But if he told us to do it, let's just do it. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's talking about that new Jerusalem. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. He said, if this wasn't true, I wouldn't be telling you this. I'm telling you this because this is more real than all of your physical life on this earth. Because everything you see, everything you touch, everything you have is going to be burned up with fire someday, and it will not exist. It will cease to exist. But who you are on the inside and what's there, the faith, the hope and the love, these three and the greatest of these is love. It will continue on for all eternity. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, I, I'm doing this for one simple reason, because I want you to be where I am, so that where I am, you may be also. That's where we are today. We need to be practicing that presence of God today. Today because that's all we're gonna have for all eternity. And it's who we actually are on the inside. In Ezekiel, the very last verse, it says the name of Jerusalem is gonna be changed in that day. And you know what it's gonna be changed to? It's gonna be changed to Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. And it's interesting it doesn't say the Lord is here. It says the Lord is there. So my question is, am I there also? so that where I am, you may be also. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. I just want to pray. Yes, ma'am. Oh, well, I already do those on Tuesday nights. You've got to come. <laughs> well, read it. 10 hours at school, I'm Read it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the tears we shed today, that they will all be wiped from our eyes. Just lost in the joy of your presence for all eternity. I pray, Lord, that as Colossians chapter 3 says that we would keep our eyes today fixed on those things which are above. As Hebrews says, that we would be like Abraham seeking a country which is our homeland, and it's not here on this earth right now. That we would hunger and thirst for your presence. That we would drink of you daily, Lord. I pray the Holy Spirit, flowing out of our innermost being to bring life and healing to this world around us. That that would not be a chapter in our Christian history, but that that would be our Christian life today. That we would not look for a revival just to come someday. That we would say yes to you today, I will be your revival, Jesus. I may not be able to preach to crowds of tens of thousands that I will be your revival of love, faith, and hope for my family, for the people that I am in contact with, for the people that I know, and you can use me anywhere you want to use me, God. Whatever you say, I'm gonna do it. Lord, I mean that today. Whatever you say, I'm gonna do it. Because I completely trust you, Lord, of my life. I just want to follow you, Jesus. I just want to be in that congregation, that solemn assembly, those people by invitation only who just build themselves a wall around and paint themselves into a corner where they're stuck with you, Jesus, and there's no way out. We're just going to be with you. We're just going to follow you, Lord. I just give you glory. I give you praise and honor this morning. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never even taken those first steps to follow after you, Jesus. I pray that they would just jump on in to the water of life, that they would just surrender to you completely, that you would just flood them with your water today, Lord. They would know true life in you, Jesus. I pray for all our young people today, Lord, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would pour out your Spirit upon their flesh, that you would just pour it out upon their flesh, Lord, whether they expect it or not, like on the day of Pentecost, and that their lives would be changed, that they wouldn't just be going to church because my parents go to church. It wouldn't be just some religious thing for them or something they have to do, but it's not really that important to me. That they would hunger and thirst after your righteousness. I know that everyone who tastes of you can never get enough. The problem is so many have just never tasted of you yet, Lord. Help us to taste and see that you are so good. We can never have enough of you. I give you praise this morning. We pray this in your name and we hope you enjoyed the message before you leave we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons that you subscribe to our podcast if you want more information on how to contact us make sure to check out our website at youringtonbillionfellowship.com and we'll see you next time on the YBF podcast